Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is David Bowes and I'm delighted to have you all here. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute and I'll be chairing things today. Our topic today is why Darwin matters or does he? Um, it's a fundamental issue. Is the theory of evolution the foundation of modern biology or if it's not, what is? And is the opposition to Darwinian evolution genuine science, or is it religion in disguise? Now, some people might argue that libertarians could choose to be conscientious objectors in this argument. After all, scientists can debate their differences without any government involvement, so scientific disputes don't need to be part of public policy. One of the ways this issue touches on public policy, of course, is in the schools. Should American schools teach evolution? or creation, or intelligent design, or some combination. When I was in college in the 1970s, the Tennessee legislature passed a law saying that the schools must teach all theories of creation. And uh, I was at Vanderbilt, and smart aleck Vanderbilt professors started writing op-eds saying, well, that means they're going to have to teach the Iroquois myth of the sky people, and the theory that the earth sits on the back of a giant turtle, and hundreds of other theories of creation. Um, I think eventually they had to uh, come up with a different uh, law there. For libertarians, of course, there's an easy answer to this question. Privatize the schools. Depoliticize the schools. That's how we depoliticize religion. Instead of fighting over how we should worship, we agreed that we'll all worship as we choose and the government won't direct the way in which we worship. Similarly, we could depoliticize the schools, let everybody attend private schools, let every school teach what it chooses, let parents choose the school that teaches what they want their children to learn. But we don't have that situation right now. Most American children go to government-run schools. And as long as we have public schools, then people are going to care what their kids are taught. Um, and certainly as long as there are public schools. If my kids were going to them, I would want them taught the best science. We will have some discussion today, I think, of what the best science is. But now it's time to let our speakers address these issues. I'm going to, address, I'm going to introduce our first speaker, uh, and then I will be back up here to introduce our commenter later. Um, Dr. Michael Shermer is the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine and the executive director of the Skeptics Society. He's contributing editor and monthly columnist for Scientific American. A few years ago, he uh, produced and co-hosted a Fox Family television series, Exploring the Unknown. He's the author of several books, including Science Friction, Where the Known Meets the Unknown, about how the mind works and how thinking goes wrong. His book, The Science of Good and Evil, Why People Cheat, Gossip, Share, Cure, uh, Care, and Follow the Golden Rule, is on the evolutionary origins of morality and how to be good without God. And I think his best-selling book was Why People Believe Weird Things, uh, which can cover a wide variety of topics. He received a Ph.D. in the history of science from Claremont Graduate School, and he's here today to discuss his book, Why Darwin Matters, The Case Against Intelligent Design. Please welcome Michael Shermer. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me here. Good to be here on the right coast. I'm from Southern California. We're on the left coast over there. 
uh, where we uh, we hang out at Caltech. We are the Skeptic Society. The the magazine Skeptic is the quarterly publication of the society. We investigate claims of the paranormal, pseudoscience, fringe groups, and cults, and claims of all times, uh, all kinds between. Uh, uh, science and junk science and voodoo science and pathological science and bad science and non-science and plain old nonsense. And unless you've been abducted by aliens and on another planet recently, you've noticed there's a lot of nonsense out there. Some people call us debunkers, but let's face it, there's a lot of bunk. Somebody's got to do it, and that's half of our job, is to uh, explain what's really going on, expose the bunk, like the bunko squad at the police departments. Uh, it's, it's our job to clean up the bad ideas in society particularly in science. Um, but that's only half the job. The more interesting part of my job, I think, is uh, not what the particular beliefs are, whether they're true or not, but why people believe them. That is the psychology of beliefs. Uh, whether it's uh, Holocaust deniers, I wrote a whole book about these guys. Uh, do they really believe that the Holocaust didn't happen? Yeah, they really do believe it. They're not just saying it to sell books because they don't really sell books uh, very well on that topic. And uh, they really actually believe that. Uh, of late, probably I've gotten more interviews in the last uh, three weeks than almost anything I've ever done on 9-11 conspiracy theories. These are people who believe that uh, the Bush administration, which they also believe is the most incompetent administration to ever inhabit the White House, is also somehow orchestrated the most incredibly complex, powerful conspiracy of all time uh, in one and, the same, uh, one and the same person. So I find that uh, very fascinating that somebody can hold in the logic-tight compartments of their brain these two com uh, sort of competitive ideas. Um, so we do pick and choose topics that are important uh, to culture. We've never done any uh, stories on the Flat Earth Society, for example, because the one and only member who was also the president died a couple years ago. Uh, it's not a big force in, in American cultural life. But on the other hand, t topics like uh, evolution and creation or evolution and intelligent design are. So that's what led me to, to write uh, Why Darwin Matters. So I will do a little bit of reading and talking from the book uh, in my time here uh, to give you a feel for um, uh, what I think is actually going on here. Um, uh, my doctoral dissertation, uh, David mentioned in the history of science, was actually on uh, evolutionary theory, specifically on Alfred Russell Wallace, who was the co-discoverer of natural selection along with Darwin. Toward the end of his life, uh, Wallace could not for the life of him figure out how natural selection could account for things like the big brain, the size of our brain compared to other primates, for example, or our ability to do mathematics, higher reasoning uh, like mathematics, aesthetic appreciation. Why is it we should appreciate uh, a beautiful sunset or a, a, a musical composition? Uh, wh what what could account for that in, in natural selection, in, out, out in the Paleolithic environment in which we evolved? He could not figure it out. And so he attributed uh, it to something inherent, inherently directional or teleological, spiritual, something else from the top down. Not this bottom-up, grindingly slow mechanism of natural selection, but something infused into the universe, the cosmos, into us. Uh, he wasn't a, a religious person in any traditional sense, so he didn't believe in a personal God, but he felt that there was design built into the system. And in 1903, he wrote a book uh, called Man's Place in the Universe, in which he basically presented these arguments and showed that uh, we are really still special uh, in the universe. We do have a special place. We are centrally uh, located, at least in a spiritual sense, and we are designed in a very special way. His book was reviewed by none other than Mark Twain, 
who uh, I think demolished the argument with his clever literary style better than anybody. So this is back in 1903. So I'll read you what is my favorite quote from from my book, um, from Mark Twain. Man has been here 32,000 years. That it took 100 million years to prepare the world for him is proof that that is what it was done for. I suppose it is. I don't know. If the Eiffel Tower were now representing the world's age... The skin of paint on the pinnacle knob at the summit would represent man's share of that age, and anybody would perceive that that skin was what the tower was built for. I reckon they would. I don't know. It is next to impossible for us to get out of our sense that we are special. This is just built into the system, and it's hard for any of us, even scientists, even Mr. Natural Selection himself, Wallace, who called himself more Darwinian than Darwin. Uh, still could not get get out of that. Um, So then I continue here um, um, with the question of why do you believe in God? I've been asking people this question most of my adult life, and in 1998, Frank Sullivan and I presented the query in a uh, more formal uh, uh, format, along with the question, why do you think other people believe in God? We gave this in a survey to 10,000 Americans. The number one reason people gave for why they believe in God is the good design, natural beauty, perfection, complexity of the world and the universe. It looks designed, therefore it was designed. Interestingly, when we asked them, why do you think other people believe in God, uh, that answer dropped down to sixth place in the various answers. The number one answer uh, people gave for why they think other people believe in God is that God is comforting, relieving, consoling, and gives meaning and purpose to life. In other words, I believe in God because of these, these intellectual reasons of it's, it's complex, it's designed, and, they, and they, they wrote these answers in these long essays to us that we then coded, uh, in which they made the design argument uh, for, for, for a rational reason for why they believe. And yet we all recognize in others that people are raised Catholic or Baptist, they grow up in this country or that country, and obviously that has a huge influence on their religiosity. But, um, but my point here is that I think... Um, what I do is concede the point that it does look designed. So people's intuitions are correct in that sense. It, it, eyes are designed to see. Yes, indeed they are. And the wing is designed to fly. Design, before Darwin, the natural inference was a top-down architectural-like designer. What Darwin gave us then was a theory to show how the design actually can come about through functional adaptations designed, as it were, by natural selection. Um, and part of the problem here, I think, is, is the problem Twain pointed out is that it is just natural to see ourselves as center and special. And, and the design argument, the design inference gives us that sense. Um, the problem is, is I think we are designed, as it were, by evolution to find design in nature. We're pattern-seeking animals. Finding patterns in nature may have an evolutionary explanation. There's a survival payoff for finding order instead of chaos in the world in being able to separate threats to fight or flight uh, from comforts to embrace or eat or among other things, which enable our ancestors to to survive and reproduce. We are the descendants of the most successful pattern-seeking members of our species. In other words, we were designed by evolution to perceive design. So I think it is built in to find connections between things and to infer agency in, in other uh, organisms like organ, uh, animals that are predators. We infer, it's correct to infer agency and intention that they are intending to do us harm and just make the assumption whether it's true or not because false positives 
won't kill you, but false negatives will. So just assume all agents are intentional and out to get you. So the, the, the inference of design and intention and agency is what I think drives uh, animism, spiritualism, polytheism, and even monotheism. I think it's built into the system. It's part of, our, uh, of, of how we were designed by evolution. But there's a deep-seated flaw in this argument, and that this gets directly to the intelligent design theory. Uh, that undermines the entire endeavor. If the world is complex and looks intricately designed, and therefore the best inference is that there must be an intelligent designer, should we not then infer that an intelligent designer must itself have been designed? That is, if the earmarks of design imply that there is an intelligent designer, then the existence of an intelligent designer denotes that it must have had a designer, a super-intelligent designer. And by the same course of reasoning, any designer that can create a super-intelligent designer must itself be a super-duper intelligent designer, and so on. Uh, this is really an important point. If let, Let's say, for example, just for fun, uh, because one of the arguments the intelligent design theorists make is that uh, certain structures are too complex to come up, have come about by a stepwise, gradual Darwinian mechanism. Let's take DNA. Uh, where did DNA come from? Well, we have some ideas it came from RNA. And well, where did RNA come from? Well, this sort of loose pre-RNA world the origin of life researchers tell us. We don't really know the answer to this question yet. But let's say we discovered the answer. Let's say we found something the equivalent of a monolith on the moon, but let's say it's a, a little sphere in the Mojave Desert or something. Turns out the whole thing was designed by extraterrestrials. This is not such a far-out idea. The great uh, cosmologist Fred Hoyle uh, speculated that life was seeded on Earth through panspermia, whether it was directed panspermia from extraterrestrials or just accidental panspermia from meteorites landing here. Uh, he wasn't sure. But let's say it turned out to be E.T., and let's say aliens came here from Vega, because, you know, that's where Star Trek always sends their uh, aliens from. And uh, let's say we found their sphere with the directions of how to make DNA. Well, the SETI people would be elated because they could get funding from Congress to boost their search for, for extraterrestrial intelligence. And the exobiology people would be elated. They could get bigger grants and so on. This would be terrific. But it still wouldn't answer the question of where DNA come from. comes from. It, it was made by the Vegans. Yeah, but where did they come from? Who designed the Vegans? And if you say, well, they, they were seeded on planet Vega from some other extraterrestrial. Well, that's very interesting. But where did that extraterrestrial source come from? At some point, we have to have a bottom-up, natural explanation for what, how the whole thing got started in the first place. And so all the intelligent design theorists are doing is saying that we can't figure out how X came about naturally. Therefore, X came about supernaturally, end of story. We call this the God of the gaps argument, that wherever there's a gap in scientific knowledge, that is where uh, the intelligent designer uh, operated. So let me pick up the story there. Um, Herbert Spencer in, in 1891 wrote, those who cavalierly, cavalierly reject the theory of evolution as not adequately supported by the facts seem quite to forget that their own theory is supported by no facts at all. So it's one thing to say that I can't figure out how X came about, and I'm not buying your natural explanation, you Darwinians or you Neo-Darwinians or whoever. Uh, this is just an argument from personal incredulity, as Richard Dawkins calls it. It's, it's just saying, I can't figure it out. Well, maybe you haven't figured it out yet because you're not smart enough, or maybe you haven't done the homework yet. Maybe you should roll up your sleeves and get to work and see if you can figure it out, rather than giving it up. Um, and um, 
and, and that's what it comes down to. So, for example, why does no one make this argument? And since we have Mr. Wells with us here, Dr. Wells with us here, perhaps he'd like to answer some of these questions I'm going to pose now. Um, this is comparable to the plane problem of Isaac Newton's time. The planets all lie in a plane, the plane of the ecliptic, and revolve around the sun in the same direction. Newton found this uh, arrangement to be so improbable that he invoked God as an explanation at the end of his magisterial work, Principia Mathematica. This most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. So why don't the intelligent design theorists quote the great Sir Isaac Newton, who was a believer, uh, a deeply religious man, who wrote more about theology than science? Why, why would they not make that argument? And the answer is because that gap has been filled. We know how planetary systems form from condensing clouds of interstellar gas. As they, gravity takes over, they begin to condense, they begin to spin. As they begin to rotate and spin, they flatten out into a disk. So the gap has been filled, in other words. The problem with chasing the gaps is where does your theory go when the gaps are filled? Because science uh, is not just a process of looking for uh, gaps. It, it is, but that's only the start of a research program. The whole point of looking for gaps is to find a, a place to do new research. So the program that the intelligent design theorists propose is just gap-seeking, no gap-filling. There's no research that I've been able to find in which they say, this is what we think the explanation is for X, other than we think an intelligent designer did it. So, for example, I, I would love to know uh, from Dr. Wells uh, if, if we had the opportunity, if he had the opportunity to teach intelligent design in a public school biology class, let's say it's 10th grade biology, it's the unit on genetics, you got two weeks to teach about genetics. What are you going to teach? Well, DNA is too complex to come about from RNA. I can't see any stepwise Darwinian mechanism of how it can come about. Therefore, we think an intelligent designer designed DNA. All right, well, let's see. That took all of about 20 seconds. You still got two weeks to fill of the unit. What are you going to do? Well, turn to science, of course, and, and, and that's my point. There's no science here. It's perfectly legitimate to criticize uh, evolutionary uh, biology. It's done all the time. If you go to any conference of evolutionary biologists and evolutionary theorists, they're going at it, tooth and nails. These, you've got to be thick-skinned and tough-minded to survive in science. It's very skeptical. They're very critical of each other. I heard Lynn Margulis stand up there at a conference and, and proclaim she is not a neo-Darwinian and she's not going to be bullied by those neo-Darwinians and so on. She went on and on promoting her own particular theory of symbiogenesis, which is sort of this non-Darwinian mechanism of the origin of complex cells. But, but that's all still within the normal boundaries of how science is done, not just reading journal articles to find where the gaps are, but taking the gaps and filling them. So my criticism of intelligent design theory is at the very moment where it gets really interesting, where we can't quite figure something out, this is where these guys quit. And they say, beats me. I don't know. I think, you know, a miracle happened or the designer did it or something like that. Well, instead of that, why don't we roll up our sleeves and get to work like Lynn Margulis did and, and see if you can test the hypotheses. So uh, this is the problem with string theory is having right now as, a, as an analogy. Uh, it's not giving us any testable hypotheses. 
And even though string theory is conducted within the normal bounds of science with the scientific community at major institutions like Caltech and MIT, these guys are still coming under the gun, as you've seen in recent books, because they're not giving us anything testable. They're, at some point, you have to come into contact with reality, the empirical world. And, and until you do, then it's not really science. Okay, a couple final comments, and then we'll get some of the answers to these, hopefully. Uh, much is made uh, by the intelligent design theorists on uh, irreducible complexity. Systems are so complex, if you took a single part out or took a couple parts out, it wouldn't work. And therefore, how would you get a stepwise Darwinian gradual system where you add this part and add that part and so on, and, and, and now you end up with this complex, say, eye or wing or something like that? This is an old argument uh, presented to Darwin even before he published The Origin of Species. He already had the answer in there when it was published, clever idea. Uh, and that's called the problem of incipient stages. So let's take the wing, for example. What good would half a wing do? I can see what good a fully aerodynamic wing would be. What good would half a wing do? Well, this is the problem of exaptation, in which a feature that originally evolved for one purpose is co-opted for a different purpose. The incipient stages in wing evolution had uses other than for aerodynamic flight. Half wings were not poorly developed wings. They were well-developed something else's, perhaps thermoregulating devices. The first feathers in the fossil record, for example, are hair-like and resemble the insulating down of modern bird chicks. Since modern birds probably descended from bipedal theropod dinosaurs, wings with feathers could have been employed for regulating heat. Holding them close to the body would retain heat. Stretching them out would release heat. In the Galapagos Islands, I have seen flightless cormorants returning to shore after diving for seafood, upon which they stretch out their stubby little wings with desultory feathers to dry them out and collect heat from the sun. In this case, wings evolve from flight tools to thermoregulating devices. In evolution, structures can be adopted for one function and evolve into use for another function and may have multiple functions at one time. And then I go on and on about all the different theories and data and experiments with birds, modern birds, paleontologists looking at bird structures and wings, how could they, be, they can be used for sort of pushing along the ground for running, for pushing down to climb trees, for example, for gliding. You don't have to have full aerodynamic flight. In other words, uh, the whole irreducible complexity argument unravels if we just take one step back and say the structures that are being used for this purpose today were not originally used for that purpose. They were used for something else and co-opted later for a different use. And so, But even if that's completely wrong, mind you, even if the RNA to DNA sequence, that's wrong. The flight uh, explanation for wings, that's wrong. Even if all that's wrong, uh, we still need to keep looking for the answer. And to just invoke the equivalent of the deity or the intelligent designer, what is that going to get us? Nothing. Not within the realm of science. Um, so I'm going to end there with um, what, what I think is a disturbing... Uh, well, two, I, I, I would like, since we have Dr. Wells with us here, I would like to ask him publicly about one statement that he made, which I find really uh, both disturbing and, and very unscientific. Um, he apparently is a member of the Unification Church and a, fo a follower of the Reverend Sun Myung Moon, uh, in which Dr. Wells writes, uh, Fathers, that is the Reverend Moon's words, my studies and my prayers convinced me that I should devote my life to destroying Darwinism, just as my, uh, many of my fellow unificationists had already devoted their lives to destroying Marxism. 
when Father chose me, along with about a dozen other seminary graduates, to enter a Ph.D. program in 1978, I welcomed the opportunity to prepare myself for battle. I cannot imagine any other area of science in which somebody would set out to destroy it. What, what's, what's the purpose of that, unless you have some other agenda? It's perfectly okay to attack somebody's theory because you think your theory is better. But in science, in order to displace the predominant paradigm of the day, it's not enough to just knock holes in it. You have to replace it with something else that not only explains the anomalies that mainstream theory doesn't explain, but it also explains all the facts that the theory does explain. So before you displace it, you have a whole set of things like our explanation for the origins of DNA, the evolution of the eye, the evolution of wings, the entire fossil record. I'd love to know from Dr. Wells, for example, what his explanation is for the fossil sequence. Why is it that we have such an incredibly detailed fossil sequence with dozens now of intermediate fossils uh, within whales, for example, and even more so with, with uh, hominids? Uh, are we to believe that the intelligent designer did what? Created the first hominid and then evolution took over and took it from Lucy all the way to us? Did the intelligent designer come from wherever he lives uh, and intervene into our world, what, at the genus level? He did the Australopithecines, then he left, and he came back, and he did the hominids, and then he left, and he, then he came back and did Neanderthal, but, or wait, maybe he created all the hominids and evolution created Neanderthals and Homo sapiens and and Homo erectus, and well, so what? I don't know, because they don't have a, a theory about that. But I'd love to know what that is. In other words, we have a theory. You can go ahead and, and say, I don't believe it, or I don't accept it. Oh, that's fine. And if you go to a conference of paleoanthropologists, this is what they do. I dispute your fossil. I don't think it's a new species. I think it's just a variation of this other species. Fine. That's all part of how science is normally done. But what you can't do is come in and say, I reject the whole thing, and I have no theory to replace it. Well, what are you doing at the conference here, then? I mean, this is science. We have to go back and test something, and that's the problem. So I end with a final quote here of why I think uh, Darwin matters, uh, and this has to do with what I think is really going on here, that is the, the fear that somehow evolutionary theory represents this materialistic uh, worldview of science, and somehow that robs us of our, our spirituality. What science tells us is that we are but one among hundreds of millions of species that evolved over the course of three and a half billion years on one tiny planet among many orbiting an ordinary star, itself one of possibly billions of solar systems in an ordinary galaxy that contains hundreds of billions of stars, <clears throat> itself located in a cluster of galaxies not so different from millions of other galaxy clusters, whirling away from one another in an accelerating, expanding cosmic bubble universe that very possibly is only one among a near infinite number of bubble universes. Is it really possible that this entire cosmological multiverse was designed and exists for one tiny subgroup of a single species on one planet in a lone galaxy in that solitary bubble universe? It seems unlikely. Herein lies the spiritual side of science, sciential,ity if you'll pardon an awkward neologism, but one that echoes the sensuality of discovery. If religion and spirituality are supposed to generate awe and humility in the face of the Creator, what could be more awesome and humbling than the deep space discovered by Hubble and the cosmologists and the deep time discovered by Darwin and the evolutionists? Darwin matters because evolution matters. Evolution matters because science matters. And science matters because it is the preeminent story of our age, an epic saga about who we are, 
where we came from and where we're going. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Um, I liked uh, another line that Michael used in his book about why Darwin matters, um, and that's in the prologue where he writes, of the three intellectual giants of that epoch, Darwin, Marx, and Freud, only Darwin is still relevant for the simple reason that his theory was right. Uh, I like that line. QED. <laughs> um, the... Uh, Podium is heavy here under the weight of all the PhDs. We have three PhDs up here on the podium. Unfortunately, like so many other things in life, they are not equitably distributed. Um, I don't have one. Um, <laughs> Jonathan Wells has received two PhDs, one in molecular and cell biology from the University of California at Berkeley and one in religious studies from Yale University. Um, he is best known these days as a senior fellow at the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute. He's the author of a book, Charles Hodge's Critique of Darwinism, and another book, Icons of Evolution. And most recently, he is the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Darwinism and Intelligent Design. And we have copies of both this and Why Darwin Matters outside, and we invite you to pick up a copy of either or both and to ask the authors to sign them. Please welcome the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Darwinism, Jonathan Wells. Thank you. In the 1960s, I was a Berkeley leftist. In fact, I spent a year and a half in prison for my opposition to the war in Vietnam. So. I love controversy, and I guess it's a good thing, isn't it? I'm now much older, and I hope wiser. In fact, I'm committed to conservative social values, and I think, like many of you in this room, opposed to big government. Unlike Mr. Shermer, however, I do not embrace Darwinism for the simple fact that it's false. Darwinism is not the same as evolution. Evolution can mean many things, uh, things like change over time or changes within existing species that are utterly uncontroversial. Nobody quarrels with them. By Darwinism, I mean specifically Charles Darwin's theory uh, in its original and modern forms that all living things are descended from a common ancestor modified by natural processes, unguided natural processes, such as random mutation and survival of the fittest. As I learned in the course of earning my PhD in biology at Berkeley, Darwinism is false because it doesn't fit the scientific evidence. This includes the evidence cited by Mr. Shermer in his book, Why Darwin Matters. For example, according to Mr. Shermer, and this is from page 16, fossils speak for themselves, and Darwin's theory of descent with modification is evident in eight intermediate fossil stages identified in the evolution of whales. Yet paleontologists now know that all of those fossils had features they would have had to lose in order to give birth to anything further on in the series. Those so-called transitional forms cannot possibly be members of a single lineage of ancestors and descendants. One might as well line up a series of automobile models to illustrate descent with modification. Indeed, some Darwinists have done this 
But we all know that automobiles are designed, not products of unguided natural forces. So the point is that a series of forms does not in and of itself show us anything Darwinian at all. Darwinists acknowledge that living things look designed, but they claim that this is an illusion. Mr. Shermer uses the example of the human eye. Here's a quote from page 17 of his book. Biological structures show signs of natural design. The anatomy of the human eye, in fact, shows anything but intelligence in, the, in its design. It is built upside down and backwards, requiring photons of light to travel through the cornea, lens, aqueous fluid, blood vessels, uh, and various nerve cells before they reach the light-sensitive rods and cones that transduce the light signal into neural impulses. This description is actually incorrect. Uh, the blood vessels are behind the light-sensitive cones and rods. Otherwise, the blood vessels would block most of the incoming light. Indeed, this is the very reason the nerve cells have to be in front of the light-sensing cells so the latter, the nerve cells, can be, uh, sorry, so the light-sensitive cells can be close to the underlying blood vessels that nourish and renew them. The human eye, in fact, is an extraordinarily efficient video camera that continually regenerates itself, unlike the cameras we make. And no one has succeeded in showing how it could have been designed any better, nor has anyone demonstrated how it evolved through a Darwinian process. Darwinists claim that microevolution, those minor changes within existing species that I said are uncontroversial, if given enough time, will produce macroevolution. This is the origin of new species, organs, and body plans. Microevolution, such as we see in uh, breeds of dogs or varieties of roses, uh, as I said, is uncontroversial. People knew about them long before Darwin came along. But macroevolution has never been observed. And the, the extrapolation from microevolution to macroevolution, in fact, remains controversial today, even among evolutionary biologists. Yet Mr. Shermer cites as an example of macroevolution a 2004 experiment that produced no new species, much less any new organs or body plans. Don't take my word for it. I have the article right here. You can come look at it after the talk. Mr. Shermer also claims that we, this is a quote from page 79, we see evolution at work in nature today, isolating populations and creating new species. But this is false. No one has ever documented the origin of a new species from another by a Darwinian process. Never. Nonetheless, Mr. Shermer concludes, and this is a quote from page 161. Uh, actually, uh, Mr. Shermer just quoted it. Uh, I'll do him the honor of quoting it again. Darwin matters because evolution matters. Evolution matters because science matters. Science matters. Now, I'll point out as an aside here my own comment. Uh, Darwinism is not the same as science. Science is a, a much bigger enterprise. Darwinism is one theory within that enterprise. So I do not equate the two. But to continue with the quote, Science matters because it is the preeminent story of our age, an epic saga about who we are, where we came from, and where we are going. Now, I like a good story as much as the next guy, but science is not about telling stories. Science is about understanding the real world by testing hypotheses against the evidence. Mr. Shermer pays lip service to the evidence, but he actually ignores it, as his book demonstrates, 
and falls back on a completely different definition of science. Here I'm quoting from page 52. The essence, this is not a quote yet, I'm leading up to it. The essence of science is naturalism, which dictates that, quote, life is the result of natural processes in a system of material causes and effects that does not allow or need the introduction of supernatural forces, end quote. Indeed, Mr. Shermer concludes, there is no such thing as the supernatural. This is not empirical science. This is materialistic philosophy. In this respect, Darwin is no different from Marxism and Freudianism. And like them, I predict, it is headed for the dustbin of history. As a conservative myself, I urge you not to hitch your wagon to a falling star. I'd like to conclude by adding that although I have criticized the faith that Mr. Shermer places in Darwinism, we agree on one important point. Here I'm quoting from page 91. He writes, in the free marketplace of ideas, turning to the government to force your theory on others, particularly children, goes against every principle of liberty upon which modern Western democracies are founded. Absolutely, I could not agree more. But uh, despite implications by Mr. Shermer, it is not intelligent design theorists who are doing this. It is the Darwinists themselves. Despite what you may have read in the, the establishment news media, there are no national campaign, there, are no there is no national campaign right now to mandate intelligent design in any science curriculum. One highly published, publicized local exception was the Dover, Pennsylvania School Board, which required the reading of a short statement informing students that there was a book on intelligent design in the school library. That school district acted against the advice of the Discovery Institute, the uh, acknowledged uh, leading organization representing intelligent design in the world today. Uh, the Discovery Institute, with which I am affiliated, <coughs> maintains that actions such as Dover's, while constitutional, unnecessarily politicize what should be a scientific debate. As you may know, the, uh, under the influence of the ACLU, the judge in that case declared that it was unconstitutional for the school board to mandate the reading of this short statement to science students. Anyway, uh, Darwinists, on the other hand, routinely use public education to impose their ideas on our children. In the past few years, several states, Ohio and Kansas stand out among them, adopted science curricula that included a critical analysis of evolutionary theory. Those curricula did not include intelligent design. They merely required students to learn the evidence and scientific arguments both for and against Darwinism. Although you might think that critical analysis would be good science education, Darwinists in Ohio succeeded last year in banning that critical analysis, and Darwinists in Kansas are now in the process of doing the same. This is not science education, but government-imposed indoctrination. Things are just as bad at the college level. Qualified scientists who criticize Darwinism become outcasts in their university departments. And in a growing number of cases, they are losing their jobs. Taxpayer-subsidized universities, which I think many of you know are not the bastions of competing ideas that they pretend to be, 
are doing their best these days to silence critics of Darwinism. As a conservative and an opponent of big government myself, I urge you to resist this government-imposed Darwinist monopoly in our public education system. For more details and documentation uh, of what I've said, uh, please see my book, The Politically Incorrect Guide, which uh, David just mentioned and which is available outside. And uh, thank you for listening. Thank you, Jonathan. I want to open this up now. And let me just say, if there are people out in the hallway, uh, there are some seats down front here um, on, on both sides of the aisle. And feel free to come in and take them. Um, let me open it up to questions then, right there. Wait for a microphone to come. I'm a science textbook editor and writer, so I'm, I'm familiar with these issues. Uh, Dr. Wells, uh, you've, you've made some good critiques of Dr. Shermer's book, although I actually don't think they really uh, criticize Darwinism as such. What I'd like to hear from you is, what is your alternate theory? I would like to hear your alternate scientific theory not a religious theory um, of how life arose and uh, you know how all these different species came to be here. You can say that with other mics right here. Well, first of all, I don't think it's uh, I'm, I'm obligated to propose an alternate theory. Uh, Mr. Shermer quotes in his own book uh, the famous physicist Richard Feynman, who said, quote, "If it disagrees with experiment, it is wrong. That's all there is to it." Alternate theory or no, Darwinism is false. Now, I don't pretend to have uh, an alternate theory that explains the history of life. I do claim to have an alternate theory that legitimizes, legitimates a logical inference from evidence that some features of the natural world are designed. That, in fact, is all intelligent design claims. It does not claim to have the whole story. Just one more thing. If you're, I mean, if you're claiming that there is intelligent design, then you're claiming that there just, there's a designer. And then you, you have to answer the question that Dr. Shermer posed, which is, you know, where, where did that designer come from? Who designed the designer? How is this not a religious theory rather than a scientific one? Well, as Mr. Shermer, I can go ahead. As Mr. Shermer pointed out, uh, one possibility, it's not one I uh, hold, but one possibility is that the design comes from extraterrestrials. Now, he can ask who designed the extraterrestrials. Uh, who designed God? Uh, theologians have an answer for that. They say God is eternal. It so happens that when I ask a materialist, where did the matter come from? The answer is equivalent. Matter is eternal. In either case, we reach a point where we have to posit something that's there all along. God, an extraterrestrial, or matter? It seems to me that that line of questioning doesn't get us anywhere. Yes, right here. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Todd Wiggins. I have a um, basic question about um, the theory of Darwinism as it applies to um, is it have any relationship to atheism or, or the mentality of atheism? And do you think that there is any um, reason to continue to teach it in public schools uh, as a standard practice, or should it be uh, outmoded until it is, we can come to some consensus as to whether it has any validity? Yeah, this is a good question. Uh, 
Uh, in David's introduction, he mentioned, uh, well, one solution to all this is just uh, you have no public schools. They're all private schools, and they can teach whatever they like, and you can have creationist schools and Darwinian schools and neo-Darwinian curriculums. You can do whatever you want, and the market can sort of sort it out. Uh, well, that, we don't live in that world, unfortunately, so that's why we have these, these courtroom trials and things like this. And uh, um, scientists uh, come from all backgrounds. They tend to be more liberal than conservative. They tend to be uh, less likely to believe in God than... Uh, the non-scientists, but but even there, it, it's it's nothing like what you would expect. For example, forty percent of all working American scientists profess belief in God. It, it isn't anything like an atheistic philosophy that that you have to have. And and let me note parenthetically, this whole business about that that we're experiencing in pop culture today about uh, you know the loss of religion in American public life is leading to school shootings and all this kind of business, and that somehow. Uh, religion makes you more moral. Well, the least moral group in America is the national members of the National Academy of Science. Only 7% of them believe in God. Well, if this other theory is true, these people should be running amok in our culture, raping and pillaging and destroying and stealing and cheating on their spouses and business partners and, and so on. This isn't happening. So I think these are largely two completely different things. Scientists will occasionally speak out about their religious beliefs, uh, either atheistic like uh, Richard Dawkins or theistically like uh, Francis Collins, uh, both in, in recent books. Uh, but that's not part of science. That's, they're just doing what people do, expressing their opinions like they would politically. So obviously that has no part in any formal curriculum at all, and it shouldn't. Okay, right here. I just wanted to follow up on the uh, question that was asked to Dr. Wells earlier. Am I live? Yes. <laughs> uh, and that is in, about the mechanism of uh, uh, that would be consistent with intelligent design. Uh, many, many religious thinkers and philosophers have said God, who, you know, who had a, a theistic view, have said God, in fact, created the world, created laws, created reality as we know it nature by thinking it that, that God, God uh, had a thought let there be a world let, it, let there be light and there was uh, that now it, regardless of the details and in the absence of any detailed theory which you've reasonably said you don't have it would that uh, is that kind of a uh, uh, pattern of causal explanation one that is amenable to scientific test in any way, and if if not, um, is there some other explanation of how anything like a, a, a conception of God as a spiritual being and uh, beyond nature would causally interact with the natural world? Uh, I certainly don't have an answer for that, uh, but let me emphasize that when intelligent design looks at evidence in the natural world and sees patterns, as Michael said, uh, the, the end point of the inference is this object, this feature, appears to be designed, I mean really designed, not just an illusion. Uh, how it was designed and by whom are additional questions which are fascinating and significant but the evidence for the design inference does not get us there uh, now I think there are fruitful ways to apply design in my field cell and developmental biology uh, I'm in fact doing that 
uh, presently. And I do it by, uh, from within a design framework, uh, I, I see what, what appears to be design. I assume then as a working hypothesis that something is designed, and I try to understand it from that perspective. And I do think uh, that design theorists presently are uh, achieving insights, and I predict future breakthroughs. This is a promissory note, of course, uh, from this perspective. Uh, but at this point, it's a fledgling enterprise, and I can't present you with any dramatic results. Uh, David Kelly has asked, uh, you do epistemology, right? You're the D David Kelly, yes. Yeah. So you've asked the, the question, I mean, where the rubber meets the road. At some point, if you believe there was some form of uh, supernatural intervention into our space and time, the finger has to come in and stir up the particles in some way to direct it or something, whatever it's supposedly going to do. And at that moment, it's legitimate for us to ask, how did, how did he do it? What forces did he use? I mean, is he using electromagnetism or gravity or some other force we don't know about yet, uh, natural selection? What, what forces id, God, whatever, using? That's a legitimate scientific question. So when we saw, for example, this business about intercessory prayer and, uh, and, the, and the experimental group supposedly getting better from their heart surgeries than the control group because they were prayed for, uh, this is a, a, an epistemological question. C can my uh, uh, prayers to the deity cause him to in, go right into the OR and tweak the cells in the heart or the plaque in the arteries or something better than the, the guys who didn't get uh, prayed for. And the results were null. In fact, the, the group that was prayed for, that were told that they were prayed for, actually did slightly worse, which, <laughs> which is rather telling. But, but really, it, it, that, that is the question that makes people nervous, because if you want to ask the question from a scientific perspective, it's perfectly legitimate for us to ask, how did it happen? What forces? And how, can we measure it? Can we test it? That's, that's what we do. It's a legitimate question, but my point was that it's not a question within intelligent design theory. Intelligent design theory merely seeks to identify patterns that have the hallmarks of real design as opposed to illusory design. Sigrid. Hi, I'm Sigrid Fry-Revere. I work here at Cato. I have a very practical question for you, for both of you, actually, and it was based on experience I had with my children and a nanny we had who believed in intelligent design. Um, she would tell my son every time he asked a question, because God made it so, all right? It was killing his curiosity. You'd ask him, why is it rain? Because God made it so. Why is the flower red? Because God made it so. Why should the child continue to ask questions about anything? So I fired her. <laughs> I think you did the right thing. <laughs> That's the free market at work. <laughs> Can I comment on that? Uh, well, I think that was a bad answer, too, but that's not what intelligent design says. Uh, I would say the counterpart to that, which I've often heard being used with children, is evolution did it, which to me is no better than saying God did it. Either one is a curiosity stopper. Right here. Hi, Ken Green, American Enterprise Institute. Um, I was also trained in the sciences, but I mostly study policy, so I want to ask a very specific policy question uh, to Dr. Wells. What exactly is it you wish to have changed in terms of the teaching of evolution? Do you wish either 
any disputed theory in a public school to not be taught or all points of view to be taught? And is it only in science or also in theology? So should every class on religion inc include an equally rigorous course in atheism? Well, uh, as I briefly uh, said in my uh, remarks here a minute ago, uh, I do think Darwinian evolution should be taught in science classes. I think it should be taught honestly with a full uh, acknowledgement of the problems it has with the evidence. Uh, and it has many. I mean, I've just mentioned a few here. Uh, I do not think it should be eliminated at this point, although I think the gentleman over here had a legitimate point that uh, it often, in fact, carries a lot of atheistic baggage that does not belong in the public schools. Uh, I would love to see the public schools uh, turned into private schools myself. I think uh, with Mr. Shermer that would alleviate many of the problems here. But in the meantime, I think Darwinism should be taught, but it should be taught critically rather than as a doctrine that cannot be questioned. I think uh, another interesting point related to also the textbook writer uh, earlier, how does anything make it into the science curriculum, for that matter? And I mentioned Lynn Margulis, who's a, a microbiologist and professor at um, UMass Amherst. And uh, so she has this theory of symbiogenesis, in which the complex eukaryote cells that you and I are made out of uh, were once, uh, the little organelles in there were once themselves prokaryote cells, much simpler cells. This is why mitochondria has its own DNA, for example, which is really weird if you think about it, until you think about it in her theory. Anyway, Lynn's been, uh, she's been working on this theory for 40 years, and it was very controversial for many decades. And uh, she set up a lab, she got grants, she got graduate students, she did research, she published peer-reviewed papers, monographs, technical books, textbooks, popular books, going to conferences, popular speeches, and finally, after about 30 35 years, it's now just trickling down into the biological curriculum as a largely accepted but still mildly controversial theory about the origins of complex cells. So the answer is you do what Lynn did. You roll up your sleeves and get to work and collect as much data and test hypotheses and go to conferences and so on. And that's how it's done. And that's how anybody does it. There's no czar that says you cannot introduce supernatural explanations and nobody allows There's nobody doing that. It's just, it's just science is this sort of collective enterprise in which you got to, it's a sort of a free market. So you got to get out there and sell your, uh, and convince your colleagues that you're right. And in fact, intelligent design theorists are doing that. Intelligent design as a, an organized body of theory is only a little over a decade old. So give us another 30 years and we'll be there too. Okay. <laughs> All right, I'm going to take a question right here. And while the microphone is coming, um, I'm going to ask a question myself to both of you. As a layperson whose science education ended around the 12th grade, <laughs> how do I decide between competing scientific theories that involve a great deal of knowledge that, that I don't necessarily have or that I may not be willing to invest the time to, to read several books on both sides of every scientific matter. How should I decide what to think about scientific issues? Well, at the risk of uh, sounding like a plagiarist, I would say be skeptical. <laughs> oh, no, that's all right. Here. I'll make you an honorary member of the Skeptics Society. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, I would not trust the uh, consensus of the experts, uh, as I wouldn't trust the consensus of experts on almost any other topic. Uh, I would give it tentative approval, perhaps, but I would remain skeptical, especially when there's as much controversy about it as there is about Darwinism. 
I, I deal with this all the time for, for my job at Skeptics with any claim that comes down the pike. Uh, like the most recent one on 9-11, the, 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 the World Trade Center buildings you know, shouldn't have collapsed the way they did if a plane hit. That, they, were, they collapsed the way they did because of uh, planted explosions inside, these little squibs that went off and so on. Well, I don't know anything about why buildings fall, so I had to go you know, read and do research and, and look it up and talk to engineers and so on. And it was pretty obvious within, you know, five minutes that the, the conspiracy theorists are completely wrong. But at every point, you had to check like that. So you, you go to the experts. Now, yes, the experts can be wrong. But that's what other experts are for, which is why we're seeing, I think, there's two new books out on string theory, Not Even Wrong and, and I forget the name of the other one. But they're both skeptical of string theory, and legitimately so. Within the confines of science, scientists going after each other. Uh, and uh, so you just sort of have to weigh the balance of, you know, which, which experts are saying this or that or skeptical of each other. Or is there a general consensus with plate tectonics, for example? And continental drift, there was little consensus until uh, the mid-1960s when there was a convergence of evidence and it became so obvious that this had to be going on and there was like six different lines of evidence that all pointed to one conclusion. I always look for, David, that, that sort of convergence of evidence in which the, the, the outsiders are picking at one little thing, ignoring this mass body of evidence that points to this one conclusion. All right, right here. My name is Inlaya. I come from India. Uh, as far as I understand, science is self-corrective and never claimed perfection. Whereas all religions that depend upon the holy books like Quran, Bible, Vedas, they claim perfection and the name intelligent design is nothing but camouflage of God. So whatever you say uh, with the sweeping remarks and without any humble nature which science claims, uh, I think is not uh, standing, and to teach intelligent design to students is uh, making a uh, very harmful thing uh, in future and also in the past. Well, I've already said that I think it's premature to teach intelligent, intelligent design in science classes. I do, however, however, think that Darwinism should not be taught uh, uncritically. Uh, in fact, uh, I agree with you that science is tentative, but uh, many of the classes I've attended or other people I know have attended about Darwinism are anything but tentative. So I think there's a problem there. Okay, in the back. Uh, I have a question for both of you. First for Dr. Shermer. You said that we had to keep searching until we find a bottom-up explanation, and I want to ask why. I mean, what if the truth about the universe isn't that there's a bottom-up bottom explanation for some things, or maybe all things? And uh, secondly, for Dr. Wells, what do you have to say to the co-option argument that, if you could remind us of what that is, and that Dr. Shermer made, and what do you have to say about that? Yeah, good question. Uh, well, first, in general, uh, when we talk about the philosophical underpinnings of science that we look for natural explanations. It's not that there's some rule that we all adhere by or there's some science czar that says you can't do otherwise. It's that there's nothing to do with non-natural explanations. There's no way to test them. Uh, let's take a, a less controversial subject. Well, maybe not. But anyway, psychic power, you know, people believe that, you know, we can read each other's thoughts. Okay, well, you know, I'm skeptical of this, uh, that there's even anything to explain. But let's say, actually, there was something to explain. There were some statistically significant tests, and it turns out some people really can read other people's minds. And, and, and then somebody discovered a theory about it. 
that, uh, that in fact, and this isn't a legitimate theory, that at the quantum level, there's certain uncertainty states inside these little microtubules inside the neurons. And, and, and in those little sort of vacuumed uh, vacuum states that there's a certain level of uncertainty that causes neurons to fire randomly or in certain patterns if we all think collectively about a certain thought like peace or ending the war in Iraq or something like this and it all directed. Let's say somebody actually discovers that there is some interaction between quantum mechanics and, and, and neuroscience and we now have a legitimate theory. All right? The paranormal has just disappeared. We've just debunked the paranormal. We now have a perfectly natural explanation for how people can read each other's thoughts. That's the ultimate fate of the paranormal and the supernatural. It's just gone when science comes up with an explanation. So it, it's just the way it is. It's not that anybody says it has to be that way. And the, the co-option question? Uh, the co-option idea is that something that may have evolved for one purpose is then later co-opted for another purpose. Uh, Mr. Shermer used the example of wings, uh, feathers actually, proto-feathers. Uh, the current hypothesis is that wings evolved, birds evolved, that is, from theropod dinosaurs. Well, a theropod dinosaurs built something like a T-Rex, only smaller. If you've ever seen Jurassic Park or been to a museum, these are animals with big, heavy hindquarters and tiny little for forward limbs, front limbs. And somehow the idea of co-option is that they sprouted proto-feathers, which were like hairs, and then somehow natural selection evolved these feathers, co-opted these proto-feathers and these many forward limbs uh, to turn them into wings. Well, I find that an argument from, if you will, credulity. Uh, we've, uh, we skeptics have been accused of the argument from incredulity. I think that's an argument from credulity. It's just totally implausible. So where do you so think co-option? I don't pretend to know. But I don't say that we have an answer, and the answer is co-option. It just doesn't work. Michael, the Washington Post reported yesterday that 30 percent of Americans believe the Bush administration raised gas prices earlier so they could then cause them to drift down <laughs> toward election day. Have you investigated this hypothesis? No, I have not, but that's a good one. I like that. <laughs> Actually, my taxi, taxi driver yesterday in New York did mention that, now that he's said that. It apparently is widespread. Uh, yes, right here. First, I just have to mention that your description of all theropods there was massively wrong. So you might want to check into that. But my question is, um, specifically, you had attacked naturalism as a methodology for science at the end of your discussion. If we have this, whether you want to use the word or not, godlike designer out there, why do you limit your attack on naturalism just to biology? Why doesn't the Discovery Institute, when they're studying traffic in Seattle, look for an intelligent designer causing traffic jams? Or my accountant, why, where is this intelligent designer in every other field of endeavor? Well, I think the Discovery Institute is advocating intelligent design of traffic, right? <laughs> yeah, not, not very successfully so far, but uh, Seattle has a terrible problem. And actually, the largest project at Discovery Institute is working on that. But uh, your, your question is legitimate. Uh, and uh, I would say that uh, science, some people say science is limited to testing natural explanations which is actually a limit on science. 
which leaves beyond science all those other things that may in fact be real, but science can't get at with its methods. Mr. Shermer in his book did not define science as a limit on method, but a limit on reality. There is no supernatural. Once you adopt that definition of science, you're actually using applied materialistic philosophy to explain the world. And the evidence ultimately is just window dressing. And that's my complaint with Darwinism, because I see Darwinism doing that. I got off on the traffic, I guess. But repeat your question, maybe. Where is the designer in every other field of human endeavor? What else is he doing or it doing? Well, I, I would say we'd have to take it case by case. Uh, actually, intelligent design is not limited to biology. Uh, there's a book called The Privileged Planet that Discovery Institute uh, fellows put out, uh, arguing that the cosmos is designed. And it gives uh, lengthy arguments and evidence for that. Uh, so it's not limited to biology. Uh, maybe traffic in Seattle could use some intelligent design. At this point, I would say there's not much evidence for it. Right there. Yeah. Uh, my name is Philip Collier. I'm a freelance writer, and like your moderator, I do not have a PhD. Um, one thing I was thinking about, and this seems to me a difficulty. Speak with, up a little. This seems to be a difficulty with intelligent design. It would be this. I would like to propose my own intelligent design theory, which is the entire universe and everything we have was created one month ago. And all our memories and all our books and everything we read and everything we know was created one month ago. And if I started an institute, I could call it the one month ago institute, and I have to call it the two month ago institute a month, I would say that the thing about my theory is that I think it's a reasonably valid theory, but the thing about it, which I say it is not scientific, is if a bunch of people believe this like I propose to do, how could you prove us wrong? What evidence facts could you show us could prove us wrong? It seems to me the fundamental thesis for any scientific theory is they would posit something and say, well, if you can show this, that's why it's wrong. And I would ask Mr. Wells, what facts or evidence would prove you wrong and if they w would not, if you can't think of anything to prove you wrong, can you tell me what would prove my design theory wrong? Well, in fact, uh, intelligent design in a given case can be proven wrong. Uh, the work of William Dembski, one of the, the main uh, theorists in intelligent design, uh, is that we basically operate in our daily lives using three modes of explanation. One is we can attribute something to natural law, natural regularities, the formation of a crystal, the, uh, the ripples of, of, of sand in, in the sand on the beach or something. Another mode of explanation is chance. Some things happen by chance, you know, the particular outcome of a, a roll of the dice or a roulette wheel. And a third mode of explanation that we all use in our daily lives, sometimes unconsciously, is design. We infer that something occurred intentionally, deliberately, uh, by an intelligent agent. Now, according to Dembski and other design theorists, we can use those three modes of explanation to account for things in the world of nature as well. Uh, design, the design inference can be defeated if, in fact, you can show that something was produced by natural law or some combination of law and chance. That defeats the design inference, and you do that with evidence. Okay, over there and then over here. Go ahead and bring another microphone down to right here. My name is Bob Levy. I want to explore one area in which all three of you seem to agree, and that is if we had a totally private education system that would sort all of this out. Parents could decide where to send their children. Schools could decide whether to teach intelligent design or 
or evolution. So is it the position of all three of you that the state should have no role whatsoever in determining what constitutes a, uh, an education? Or if you're prepared to make compromises in that regard and, for example, prevent madrasas from teaching terrorism, then where do we draw the line? Don't we also have the problem that you are debating in a totally private educational system? Wow. <laughs> in, in two minutes or less. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, at the very least, school choice would be a nice start. You leave the public schools there for a while. I mean, we're not going to just dismantle them overnight. So at least let parents choose. And, and even home, well, some do with homeschooling, but, but more choice than that. I, I wrote a book on libertarianism, so I guess I think that uh, the schools ought to be private. And, I, and I'm not sure that I think your point applies here. I think there might be a case that, look, our society, even in private schools, is not going to allow the teaching of hatred and incitement to violence. But good and bad science, whichever is which, it seems to me there's not a case for government involvement. Jonathan? Let me just add that uh, I, I think the debates we're having here about the science, about Darwinism and intelligent design, will and should continue, uh, private or public schools. But what bothers me right now as a taxpayer is that the polls consistently show that about 80 to 90 percent of the American people do not accept Darwinian evolution as I defined it. That is, uh, unguided natural process produce everything that we see. And yet, so that's only 10 to 15 percent, actually, of the, pop, of the population believe in Darwinism. And yet the 80 to 85 percent, if it will, of the public who don't accept it are forced to pay for it to have a monopoly in the public school system. It's that taxpayer-supported monopoly that bothers me. Right here. Tom. It should be. Uh, um, I'd like to ask Michael Schirmer... Um, how he would answer the question that was just asked about falsifying a theory. Falsify how can Darwinism be shown to be false? It seems to me that if you have a philosophy, a materialist philosophy, as I believe you do, materials, atoms and molecules in motion is all that exist. The fact is that, you know, organisms do exist, we do exist, so we got here somehow, so we ha they had to have whirled themselves into, ex into bats and bees and all the rest of us. So you don't, need any, you don't need any evidence for evolution once you have that philosophy. It's just simply a logical deduction from your philosophy. So what, can you imagine anything being discovered that would, in fact, result in your saying, well, Darwinism can't be true in that case? Fossil trilobites in hominid bedding planes. <laughs> that wouldn't disprove it. The, the conclusion would be that the trilobites actually survived all those millions of years, but they just didn't leave. No, but, but, but based on the current uh, uh, understanding, this would be a serious problem. T evolution is quite testable. It's tested all the time. That's a, sort of a, a one-off liner uh, answer, but, but the equivalent of that goes on all the time, every day in labs. That's what they're doing. Okay, I'm going to call this to a halt so we can go have lunch and buy books. Um, I want to thank Dr. Jonathan Wells for talking about his book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Darwinism, and Dr. Michael Shermer for talking about his book, Why Darwin Matters. Thank you all for being here. Please thank our Thank you. Guys.